Hi everybody, Luke Copping here. I'm really happy today to bring you a really special episode because it's a chance for you to get to know a little bit more about one of your hosts on ASMP Experts and Masters, ASMP Executive Director Tom Kennedy. I'm really lucky in my role as the chairperson of the board of ASMP to get to travel regularly with Tom, have a lot of conversations with him about this industry, where things are going, where things have been, about his experiences as the director of photography at National Geographic and other roles he's had at the Alexia Foundation and the Washington Post. Tom is an incredible resource for photographers all over the world. He's an amazing proponent of visual journalism, and I was really happy to get to sit down with him today and chat a little bit about ASMP's mission and where he sees things going in the world of photography. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of ASMP Experts and Masters. I'm Luke Copping, and today I'm going to be sitting down with my co-host from some of our live events, Tom Kennedy. Tom is the executive director of the American Society of Media Photographers. And while you guys have been seeing Tom and I on, you know, the various streams, either through Adorama or the Photo Brigade, or if you're listening on iTunes, uh, but we wanted to give you guys a chance to get to know us a bit. So today I'm primarily going to be talking to Tom about his his background uh, in photography and photo editing, how he came to ASMP, and we're going to have a conversation about what Tom sees in the current state of photography and what's coming down the pipeline for photographers. So good morning, Tom. How are you today? I'm great, Luke. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, no problem. I think Tom and I have had the pleasure of traveling together quite a bit over the last couple of years, and we've had a lot of uh, late night conversations about where the photo industry is going that have opened my eyes to a lot and also opened my eyes to a lot of the history of the photography world. Uh, and, and I want to share some of that with the uh, the viewers today and uh, listeners and ASMP members. So uh, I think right off the bat, Tom, uh, let's jump into a little bit of your history. I know you're uh, originally from Florida and you you came out of the journalism world um, as, as a photo editor. Do you want to start giving us sort of the the, the two-minute rundown on, on who Tom Kennedy is and where you came from? Sure. That sounds fine, Luke. Um, yes, I was a graduate of the University of Florida's Journalism College. And uh, after a short stint in the Army at the end of uh, the Vietnam War, not overseas, but, you know, in the Army, uh, I was drafted in the last draft class. Um, I uh, went to uh, start to work as a newspaper photographer in Florida. Um, and first I worked for the Orlando Sentinel and then to the Gainesville Sun. And it was at the Sun, which is actually in, the, you know, at the same town as the University of Florida, that I... Um, discovered that my real, probably my true passion and true calling was in photo editing. Uh, and after a stint at the, uh, there, I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer and there it was really where I started to really find my legs as a photo editor. I had a great run there. I was able to work on some special projects for the Sunday magazine that we had at the time that, uh, earned Pulitzer Prizes for the photographers involved, as well as some other major awards. And from there, I went to the National Geographic. Initially, I was their assistant director of photography. But after a couple of years, I became the director of photography and was there for a decade uh, from 19 uh, as director of photography from 1987 to 1997. And then from there, I went to the Washington Post and had the privilege of starting their multimedia operation on the on the digital side and had a great run there lasted until 2009 and from there i went into teaching and photo coaching and a variety of things and uh, wound up 
you know, talking with and being selected and asked by ASMP to be on the uh, board I, or committee, I guess you could say, that was looking for an executive director. And that's kind of how I found my way to ASMP. Great. So um, stepping back a little bit, I mean, your time with Nat Geo, um, I mean, for a lot of our interesters, is, is really interesting because you had a lot of longevity at the geographic. Um, and I know me and you have talked about this before, but I'm sure our, our listeners would love to hear some of, you know, the photographers that you built relationships with during your time there and that you worked with that are sort of living legends today. I mean, who were some of the big names that you worked with back then? Oh, gosh, <laughs> there were so many. Um, it's really hard to almost single anybody out. I was really privileged to work with some of the best uh, in the business at the time. I mean, there are people like Jody Cobb, uh, Gerd Ludwig, David Allen Harvey, Bill Allard, Sam Abel, Jim Brandenburg, Annie Griffiths, uh, Karen Kazmowski, uh, Lynn Johnson, so, so many, uh, Reza, um, you know, my primary, I guess my primary intention as director of photography was always to try to pair photographers with assignments in a way where they could succeed and I could, uh, you know, have them operating out of a position of personal passion and interest in the assignment at hand. So uh, one of the things that I was really keen on was exploring who were the major talents of the day and trying to line them up to work on assignments for the geographic. And in a sense, it was, I don't know if democratizing is really the right word, but it was expanding the pool of talent. Many of these people were coming out of the freelance photojournalism world, and we were able to internationalize it. I was working with people from overseas like Reza or Tomasz Tomaszewski from Poland or Stuart Franklin from England, a variety of people, Bruno Barbet from uh, France. So it just was really a wonderful opportunity to bring people in who, uh, you know, might not immediately be thought of as National Geographic, quote unquote, photographers, but who really contributed to enlarging sort of the aesthetic vision of the magazine and making it a very interesting mix. Well, in the change of that aesthetic vision, I mean, you certainly did bring in people who many traditionalists within the geographic might have considered outsiders that a lot of people see as kind of breathing new aesthetic life into the magazine. During your tenure, what were the changes you saw in the geographic from, from when you started to when you exited your role? I mean, was there a culture shift that happened while you were there? I think, yeah, probably so. And it was, you know, certainly conscious on my part to try to bring in new faces and, uh, and people with new you know, aesthetic visions that could enlarge what we were doing. Uh, my belief was is that people needed to experience our photography as a way of seeing the world and that we shouldn't shy away from utilizing the aesthetic language with which various photographers were expressing themselves. And I think that we succeeded at that. We introduced, for example, at in the we did an all issue uh, all single issue on Australia in 1988 as part of our centennial year and i was able to introduce michael o'brien uh, a newspaper photographer that i was very familiar with who had worked in florida when i was there and who had gone on to do you know become an advertising photographer and was doing a lot of portrait work and in that same issue we also were able to use some work by mary ellen mark on a particular story. So, I mean, it was just the ability to really introduce different aesthetics visions and sort of have them collide in a single issue and, and be an interesting mix. I thought that that would enlarge people's 
vision of what photography could do as a way of explaining the world and it would make for a more interesting magazine. Would you consider that Australia issue one of the defining projects you presided over while at the Geographic? Yeah, absolutely. It was the first time we had tried to do a single issue and it was very, very successful for us. And I, you know, I was fortunate enough to have worked with some really talented photographers on the issue. And, and I think it really, uh, it was just a milestone sort of in the evolution of the magazine, at least photographically. What was the transition like after leaving the geographic transitioning into your role at the Washington Post, especially leaving sort of more of a traditional photo editor's job and stepping more into the multimedia world? Well, I mean, I had gotten interested. I had the good fortune to participate in a project in 1993 when I was still at the Geographic. We, the a group at Time Warner, uh, had assembled a team of all-star photo editors and photographers to work on a project to try to develop a prototype of an end-to-end digital magazine. And this was, you know, obviously very early days in the uh, evolution of digital technology, both in terms of the camera systems and also in terms of image processing software. So we spent a week in the basement of the time building working on this. And it was fascinating for me and really opened my eyes to what was coming down the pike as the digital revolution. And it really got me very uh, excited, I thought, about the possibilities. This was, you know, relatively early after the web had first emerged from the mind of Tim Berners-Lee. And, uh, you know, Mosaic had come onto the scene as a way of representing HTML language, but also incorporating visuals. So I really thought that there was going to be an immense potential in this new medium, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, that could be really interesting. And so when I, when I went to the Washington Post, I wanted to bring the sensibilities of storytelling that I'd honed working at National Geographic and then just apply that in a new way, uh, mixing both stills and video together uh, to try to tell multimedia stories, utilizing them in their respective genres and independent or mediums independently, but also mixing them together at times. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to, in the early days, to have not only financial support for what we were trying to do, but also to have very much creative freedom afforded me by the leadership of the Washington Post digital operation at the time. And it was just really, you know, it was the perfect uh, storm of possibility that really uh, fueled my own creativity and gave me, uh, you know, a great way of working with the people that I'd brought on as, to be part of my team. Do you think that the the kind of um, starting change in format that you, you worked on there with the emergence of multimedia, do you think that it had an effect or changed the way that journalists told stories or, or thought about how they approached their stories um, coming from a purely print world previous to that? I think it did because it placed uh, more of an emphasis on crafting narrative fully. And so when I looked at sort of what we were doing, I really thought in terms of cinema and cinematic storytelling, where you're moving people through a situation in time and space in a, and having them encounter characters, for lack of a better way of saying it, people that would be the subjects of the stories, but in a really authentic in documentary style. So I, I really felt that this was changing the vernacular of how we were telling the stories. And 
obviously working on the digital side of the post, I was also able to work with the still photographers who were conventionally contributing to the, the newspaper on a daily basis and to really uh, kind of work with them to make fuller use of the material that they were generating frequently on assignments. And that, you know, that felt really good. And I uh, really enjoyed the process of doing that. It's interesting you mentioned the the word cinematic, because I think today there's so much cross-pollination between photography and motion and the aesthetics of um, how so many photographers have tried to adapt to like a cinematic look. On, on the converse side of that, is, is there anything out there film-wise or cinema-wise that you think has had an influence on still photography or at least that photographers and journalists, storytellers should be looking at to sort of start to learn that motion vernacular? That's a great question, Luke. I mean, I really, I guess the way that I approached it and this might work for some people, I, you know, I don't know, is that I really looked at directors of photography who were working in motion, you know, for Hollywood great cinematographers looking at their work and also studying kind of the work of famous directors, seeing how they constructed their scenes and uh, explored the uh, arc of the story um, to try to get a sense of how those could be applied in a more journalistic fashion. Obviously today we're on the you know on the cusp of seeing augmented reality and virtual reality being employed as journalistic tools and i think uh, the growth of those branches of the media that apply to visual storytelling are just really still in their infancy and I, i'm really interested to see where it all would go do you see some constants in the evolution of of rich media uh, news sources from when you started with the project at the washington post to what we're seeing now like you mentioned with augmented reality but also with you know tablet based and digital edition magazines that are mixing still in motion um, even the way type is presented these days has an element of uh uh, digital motion to it in many cases. Um, do you see some consistency between what you started with and where we're going? I, w- I don't know if I'd say, I don't know if I'd use the word consistency. I would say that I see some evolution and uh, deeper execution of creativity going on. But at the same time, I've also been kind of perplexed that I think in the news, in the newspaper space, at least, this kind of work has really stalled out at most places other than the New York times, perhaps the Washington post and maybe the LA times. I mean, I just, you know, there just doesn't seem to be, I just see a hollowing out of newspapers and taking a step back, going all the way back to the beginning of my career. I always felt that the visual teams in most newsrooms were the minority group. And we were operating within the construct of a larger culture where the political power within the newsroom and the emphasis of focus tended to be on the writing rather than on the visuals. Visuals were presented almost as acts of illustration rather than as mediums that could tell stories in their own right fully. You know, I was fortunate at the Gainesville Sun to have a, an editor who believed in the power of the visual storytelling that we were trying to articulate. And it really, again, gave me free reign to uh, explore the medium within the construct of a newspaper. So it kind of uh, is an exception to the rule. But I guess I've been disappointed that the evolution hasn't come further faster 
in that I kind of envisioned in the 90s that there would be uh, teams emerging that would be almost like the teams that emerged in Hollywood in the early part of the 20th century, where there would be production uh, companies that would be producing this kind of journalism and then offering it up for distribution, either through their own means on the web or by uh, offering it to existing mainstream media outlets um, and that it would be more fully utilized. I mean, I remember looking back at CBS Sunday morning show and seeing how revolutionary that was in the context of broadcasting because it was using sort of, uh, I would say, more evolved visual technique and more interesting documentary storytelling as part of their mix. Um, And I, you know, I was just really expecting that it would take off and take root and be flourishing all around the country. And instead, because mainstream media has been so hammered by financial uh, problems and constraints over the last decade, I really feel like it's slowed the evolution in ways that have been kind of disappointing to me, quite frankly. Sure. And I mean, we, even in the last few years, we've seen cultural shifts. I, I, you look back at what happened with the the newspapers in Chicago and the, the mass layoffs, which, you know, we continue to see trends with um, maybe not necessarily on that scale, but uh, a lot of that comes up um, over time. And then the recent controversy about statements made by uh, some journalists at uh, pointer regarding the importance of photography and where they source visual journalism from. Um, at the same time, do you think there's room for someone to provide a counterbalance to that, to promote, you know, the importance of visual journalism? And we certainly saw, the successes of papers in Chicago that didn't liquidate their photo departments uh, and and have still fantastic photography. Yeah, I think that this is the real question of the moment. Um, I am absolutely astounded at the gutting of some of the photo staffs that continues in, you know, as a result of intense pressure to generate profit among some of the existing mainstream newspapers at sort of, I would say, that characterizes the mid-market levels, the Dallas's, the Denver's, the Bay Area papers, et cetera. And it, it seems to me it's very ironic that at a time when visual language is utilized by the public to express aspects of their life on a daily basis. If you think about Facebook or Instagram or some of the other platforms, YouTube, that these mainstream media's uh, outlets are gutting (laughs) areas that the public is clearly validating by their own amateur work. And it just, it's, the disconnect to me is mind blowing. And I just honestly don't get it. Do you think it leaves a space open, uh, maybe on the converse, you know, we're always looking for the good and the bad, but do you think that this leaves a space open or the possibility of emergence of a model of um, almost cooperative type agencies, you know, maybe something similar to the idea behind seven, but on a less centralized and more distributed scale for photographers who may have been laid off from these papers to sort of form their own photo collectives thematically? I mean, that would certainly be, you know, you're you're asking a really great question there, and it would certainly be my instinct to try to engineer that. I mean, I look at uh, Brian Storm's company, MediaStorm, as an example of a a, a operation that really tried to, has tried to 
utilize fully the aspects of storytelling that multimedia affords. And it's been, you know, it has been quite successful as a company. And Brian's done a great job of be, acting as an evangelist for the industry. And I think he and I both were, you know, had conversations where we said we really expected the kind of uh, effort that he was mounting to be taking hold and more, as I said, more of these to emerge. I think the challenge is finding, you know, creating signal amidst the noise of the Internet, finding an audience that can be monetized and then, uh, you know, finding corporate brands or other entities that would want to take advantage of the audience that's being built. And it's a massive, as with most media, it's kind of a chicken and egg problem that has to get work through always. But I would hope that, you know, I, I guess I keep rooting for someone with vision and deep pockets, much like Ted Turner starting CNN back in the day, that someone would step up and say, hey, there's an open blue ocean space here that we could really take advantage of if we rolled up the talents of people who are now being pushed out of their mainstream media organizations and really uh, have have that be the basis for building something else. So turning from the kind of the macro view of that to the micro, do you think there is opportunities almost on a local level for smaller grassroots groups like that to exist within the ecosystem of a single city? I think it depends, you know, I think it would depend. I mean, that's a good, another great question, Luke. I think it would depend on whether or not they are tackling issues and covering their communities in a way that really meets the needs of the public in those areas. And it's so, the signal is so strong that people in the community would be uh, inclined to support them because they recognize that there's a, a value occurring as a result of the efforts involved. I think that's always the challenge, right? To persuade people that you're worth paying into to because of the nature of the work that you're doing and the quality of it. I really do think quality matters and the wisest brands in the corporate space that have taken advantage of multimedia storytelling. And I'm thinking of a company uh, like Nike, perhaps, or Starbucks or some of the others that I can think of. Those companies understand that visuals apple is a great example i mean if you look at apple's commercials i mean they are so stunning visually and i think it's you know they recognize that they need in a world of instantaneity and and very limited attention spans that the aesthetic language that they use actually is significant and driver of audience attention and so they try to create uh, in a way that allows that attention to flourish by as a result of the visuals that are being presented. I, I just really feel like there's an immense opportunity there. And I think it's a, it's a question of really performing at the highest levels and then having the work get recognized and having word of mouth go around in the community that, hey, this is really cool. We should support this. Do you see, um, you know, extrapolating that a little bit, do you see the rise of 
that kind of group or even existently what we're seeing with some citizen journalism. I mean, we've seen some amazing uh, coverage of various political riots and demonstrations from photographers on Instagram who are turning out incredible work who may not necessarily be viewed as traditional journalists. But do you see the democratization of photography and the ability for people to record what's happening um, and distribute that as something that could be a bulwark against what a lot of people are perceiving now is the rise of infotainment. And, you know, in quotation marks heavily, the idea of, of fake news, but let's rephrase that news that may be heavily spun with bias to one side or the other, wherever you land on the side of that argument. I think, I do think that that's all possible. And Again, going back to just before I left National Geographic, that was what was most exciting to me about the arriving digital age that I saw coming was my belief that photographers could work without the mediation and the constrictions that often existed within mainstream media organizations, even including our own, that the the they would be able to present their view of the world in a very unfiltered way, but also let the audiences decide the value of the work that was being presented and hopefully support it because they recognize the value of what was being presented. I think all of that is uh, still very much in the realm of possibility. It's a question of getting out there and beginning the practice of it. I mean, I think that it's essential that image makers be able to tell their stories by also encoding their own, the rationale behind their point of view on the topics that they're covering. And I felt like when I looked at the possibilities of multimedia storytelling early on, that was something that I really wanted to try to figure out as part of the equation is working out how we could be presenting the, um, storytelling with a kind of clarity about our own methodology and intentions so that people could also have that as a, as a, as a um, part of the communication messaging. And I think that especially now with all of the craziness that's gone on with regard to fake news and, you know, all the stuff in the vernacular about that, I think this kind of, uh, I think this kind of uh, revealing of one's methodology is crucial and it still has to be worked through uh, in a different way than we've seen it to date. Yeah. From a non-news standpoint, I know primarily your background is in journalism, but ASMP represents photographers across a wide spectrum of specialties, including commercial photographers, non-news editorial photographers. Um, I want to I want to shift to the um, the editorial world. A lot of what we've talked about and seen in the news lately are people decrying the death of print and the struggles of magazines. What is your take on the world of non-news publishing right now? I mean, do you see it as a viable place for photographers to still make a living or at least to get their first footholds in the industry? I think I do, Luke, primarily because I think that what is sort of the iceberg under the waterline, I mean, people tend to think of magazine, print journal, you know, uh, editorial products in the context of the ones that people would be most familiar with, either general interest publications or, you know, news-based publications or sports-based publications, et cetera. But I think if you look at the, there's a vast iceberg under the waterline of specialty magazines that cater to almost every 
kind of business or uh, sector that you can imagine. And those publications all have a need for visual information. I was actually on a call yesterday with uh, members who represent the Outdoor uh, Media Association. And you think about all uh, hunting magazines, fishing magazines, uh, hiking magazines, you know, there's, you know, the possibilities are very large in those kinds of spaces that, that exist and, and photographers can easily find their way to those publications if they are diligent about sort of aligning what they're interested and passionate about personally with what, how, what are the publications that are supporting a given sector of the economy? I wonder if the same thing could be said almost about um, photographers working in the commercial world as well. I know that as the um, rise of and ebb and flow of the advertising industry goes in, in the last couple of years, maybe not nationally, but at least in some regional markets, we've seen anecdotal reports of disruption of the agency model from some people. And a lot of that is due to oversaturation of people in the advertising field who then end up going to uh, corporations or various companies as in-house marketing and advertising people as more and more firms bring their creative departments in-house. And do you find that that personal alignment, those photographers' passions might give them a, a means to align themselves with companies directly rather than going through the middlemen of an agency? I think that that is a distinct possibility, particularly if you consider that a lot of these companies and brands are looking for people who bring an audience already with them. So, to that extent, photographers, who, for example, who are, and that was really the substance of my conversation yesterday with my two colleagues from the that Outdoor Media Association was talking about how companies util, are seeking to utilize photographers who have built up strong followings based on the their execution in a given area. And I, I would think that that trend is only going to accelerate, at least in the short run, and that you know, that confers great opportunity. It's too. an interesting point you bring up because a conversation I've had with numerous members and other photographers over the year is the idea of the audience-driven platform and how it's viewed by other photographers. We've seen, you know, in some cases, uh, celebrities with mass followings landing large campaigns regardless of their skill level as a photographer. And I think that's one side of the equation. But I also think that there is a distinct rejection of certain aesthetics by photographers um, who may view themselves as working within one distinct genre or one uh, certain idiom. Um, do you think that the rise of phone photography, or should I say like even lo-fi photography as a viable aesthetic in marketing and advertising and news has created a backlash amongst some traditional photographers who view it as an exercise of craft. They're searching for perfection in their images, whereas marketers and their you know potential clients are predominantly concerned with authenticity right now. I think you're absolutely right, Luke. And I think that that is kind of a disconnect that exists that has to be navigated by everyone on an individual basis. I mean, I've been struck by looking at some quote unquote, lo-fi campaigns that were actually executed by very skilled professionals who just were tweaking their aesthetics to reflect what the the corporate entity was seeking in the moment from that work. And the results were spectacular. I think it. Uh, one of the things, I, if I take a step back and sort of 
draw on my previous experiences, one of the things that I was always very concerned with working with photographers is whether they were getting stuck in seeking that perfection in a way where they just were endlessly repeating what they were really comfortable and good at doing. And I saw my role as a photo editor or director of photography as pushing them out of their comfort zone and continuing to ask them to keep reaching and keep growing aesthetically and changing and morphing so that they would just enlarge the repertoire of creative responses that they had to given problems that we were asking them to solve visually. And I, I still believe that that is the best path to staying whole, if, for lack of a better way of saying it, as a creative person. And I think it applies to what you've just raised. Do you think photographers in this era need to separate the ideas of proficiency and professionalism? That's a great question. I think that professionalism to me means being able to deeply understand the ambitions of an organization for the visuals that they're asking you to create, and then being able to deliver on that in the ways that really truly solve the problem. And even, you know, hopefully take the entities to an unexpected place that they didn't even realize that they could um, achieve. And I separate that a little bit from the idea of technical proficiency, because I think you could be technically proficient, but you could also be operating in a way where you're taking the requests of entities at face value without really exploring the deeper needs that you could satisfy, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've seen... Um... I've seen the rise of that when I see some really amazing photographers that I know personally who can work in different areas of, of photography. What one photographer may view as being an imperfect image to them is actually what makes the image fantastic. I mean, we sort of are, our personalities are our mistakes and our errors. You know, um, the whole idea of uh, perfection is a, a journey, not a destination. Uh, we might be chasing something, but if we ever get right, there, that's right. the fun I, of it. You know, I, I certainly subscribe to that idea. And I mean, I think that we really constantly should be striving to represent the creative vision that we have with as much power and um, fidelity as we can muster. And that that is, I guess, to me, the essence of authenticity from a creative standpoint. You know, switching from looking inward, which I think photographers do a lot. We talk about what's happening in the industry, what's happening with other photographers, what's happening with, uh, you know, copyright and legislation. Um, I think it's important that we, we look outwardly, too. How do you think the change in how people consume imagery has affected photographers? Like what, what is the place for visual literacy in today's culture and how can we help the culture's sense of visual literacy to grow and bloom? Wow. Those are important questions, Luke. Uh, I think in what I am concerned about, uh, I, I'm going to answer this you know, again, I'm going to have to draw on my background as a photo, you know, in photojournalism in some ways to answer the, to address the question. But I, I have been concerned about the way that technology 
uh, has created what I call a swipe culture where the consumption of images is done in an eye blink and people really don't allow the image in except in rare circumstances to really penetrate their consciousness and move them emotionally or intellectually. And I think that is something that has been a little bit lost by the rise of the technologies that are afforded right now as distribution platforms. Now, having said that, um, it's not to say that that can't occur in a digital environment, but I think that there's a propensity because of the unbelievable flood of imagery that circulates through these platforms on a daily basis that people simply don't have the time or want to spend the time really diving deep for the kind of imagery that would move them or uh, change their worldview in any way. And I think that's the beauty of print. That's the beauty of books. You know, that's the beauty of a longer form storytelling and video form is that you, you, you're creating a different kind of sensory impression that really sticks with people. Another way of looking at that question is that, that it really ramps up the need to have an A game that you're bringing constantly to the party. Because if your images are going to stand out from that flood and stop people, which is obviously what I think brands are really looking for uh, in their request of photographers, you know, you're going to have to really be bringing something powerful to the party and in the aesthetic sense. Um and to me, those uh, requirements are essential in the landscape that we're in. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is a new ground for a lot of us. Um, this, this idea of this culture shift, even just in the last two to three years and how people consume the news cycle, but how people view, in some cases, imagery with maybe more of a sense of skepticism uh, and in other cases, more of a sense of blind acceptance. Um, I think we really do need to to start looking at the delineation between how much is too much in terms of artifice with our imagery. I know um, Tom and I have uh, had numerous conversations with uh, organizations that are concerned with the representation of retouching in the beauty industry uh, or even in the advertising industry as a whole. And I think that's going to become a, a major conversation for us moving forward as we go in one, exploring how we can better represent these notions of like fantasy and idea at the same time, keeping people grounded in a sense of reality and, how we represent um, ideas and people and the human body and what that tipping point is between authenticity and uh, sort of more fantastical creativity. I agree. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm certainly looking at technological um, developments that enable the sort of the falsification of images as a creation of fantasy in a way that will make them appear to be real and indistinguishable in some ways from uh, uh, it's just amazing, you know, thinking about these, the new video editing technology that's coming on stream where you can insert audio clips and make it appear as though the person is speaking the words and 
they would never have uttered those words just by, um, you know, the tools that are available for that now. And that's to me is very scary. And I think that there's going to have to be attention paid to really sorting out the expressions of reality and finding a way to bake in a, a code that allows people to discern what's real from what's um, what's completely false and intended to be either satire or fantasy or, you know, fiction in any case. You know, I think intention is the, I think intention is the real key word there. Um, you know, it certainly is easier to do through technological means now, but I think this has existed in the analog world as well. And we've seen it in the last couple of years with the number of major awards and contest prizes revoked from various journalists. I mean, even as uh, recently as, as last week with a, a case of a photographer staging an image with a taxidermied animal that won an award um, and that sort of misrepresentation of what an image is. It, it's dangerous in some ways because I think it contributes to a misunderstanding of the realities of the world. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with the use of fiction where it's appropriate, but I think that we have to be able to now enable audiences to really distinguish the two clearly and uh, make their own judgments about what they're valuing because they are able to discern it clearly. So Visual literacy aside, and, and that sort of culture shift, um, and how it's affected photography, and, and what we'd like to change as an organization, what what are the largest issues you think photographers are facing internally? Um, be that from you know regulatory forces like copyright, um, changes in the copyright law or code, you know, in changes in the industry, or even changes from within how we perceive our photographic community, how we perceive our peers, and what positives and negatives do you see coming down the pipeline that photographers are going to have to be prepared to deal with in those eras and those uh, realms? Well, I think the challenge, certainly on the copyright front, the challenge continues to be that the very platforms that have been built to essentially enable the democratization of expression and distribution of imagery, as well as the kind of on the business side, allowing photographers to find markets globally as opposed to being constrained to a given geographical area or region. At the same time, those same platforms have been massive uh, infringement engines, in my mind, and the platforms themselves continue to be afforded an ability to hide their own uh, responsibilities to the creative community, uh, and, uh, or not hide them, but they just, they don't, they're enabled not to have to address the issues that their platforms are creating. And they've chosen to not take responsibility for any of the deleterious outcomes. I think that's a huge problem for the industry. I think if you put that on top of the issues of whether or not because of the glut of uh, imagery produced on a daily basis by amateurs, including with smartphones, you know, whether or not companies are considering good enough is good enough, and they therefore don't aren't inclined to take professionals work anymore and make the kinds of assignments that we saw, you know, 20, 30 years ago. That's another you know, set of issues that are going to have to be navigated. And finally, what I see happening 
interestingly, is the effect of AI and robotics on vision systems that may really be influential in the future uh, for a variety of different modalities of communication, for example, thinking about how they might be applied to sports photography or news photography that, um, you know, I think those are going to have to be reckoned with in some way. So I just think there's a lot on the horizon that bears close watching. And I think we as institutions have to figure out and represent representatives of the creative communities we serve, we have to figure out how we can best position ourselves to try to address and influence these um, realities. Do you think that the emergence, or I shouldn't say the emergence, because I don't want to make it sound like it's a new thing, but the more visible representation of diverse voices in photography uh, could help with that. I think that the, the diversification of voices is incredibly important. And that's actually, that was actually my primary motive when I was at National Geographic for bringing in a lot of people from the freelance world at the time, is I felt like that there were people who represented cultures and experiences in life that I thought would be really beneficial to add to the mix. And it's sort of like yeast, um, you know, that the bread was going to rise better if we had certain kinds of yeast combinations available. And I, I really still believe that we're on the very front end of really representing the realities of the world more fully because we're allowing new voices to emerge that represent those communities because they have life lived experience within those communities that gives them a perspective for understanding the communities in a different way than you would if you were an outsider to those communities. I think there's immense value in that, Luke. And I, I really think that we should all be in, encouraging that and supporting that as fully as possible. Right. And I mean, it, it's almost uh, it's almost a uh, answer to the accusation that photographers often suffer is that they're tourists in a way, sort of benign um, observers, almost, uh, well, well, you know, never, never uh, interacting with going on there. I think we go back to the controversies looking at images by photographers like um, like Kevin Carter, um, you know, who might be an example of that, uh, you know, accusations that he suffered during his career. Um, but the idea of having people from within people who have experienced what they're photographing, I think gives uh, a breath of fresh air to covering some of these communities and places and issues. I think, yes. And I think they, you know, they can bring insights that you might not have if you were an outsider. I remember, um, had, I mean, an assignment at national geographic where the photographer produced work that the writer looked at and and actually laughed with delight because the there were moments of interaction in the photographer's work that reflected the um, body language that the writer was very familiar with from that part of the world and he just was very excited that it had been captured and so well seen and I think those are the kinds of subtleties that are more fully revealed. And ideally, the work is sh um, uh, showcasing kind of the specifics maybe of the moment, but it's also connecting to deeper truths about the human condition that can also be discerned when one looks at the work critically and carefully. 
Are you hopeful of seeing the rise of more groups and collectives like Diversify Photo? I I think I am, but I don't. I think that they need support to flourish, and I think it's a matter of helping spread the word and find the vehicles of support that can allow that kind of, uh, you know, allow those groups to flourish. Uh, more fully and come to the mainstream in a more full way, you know, whatever the mainstream really is at this point. I mean, I think that's another open question because what I see happening, and certainly this seems to be the trend of the last decade is the fragmentation of media and the splintering into a million pieces. Um, And therefore it makes it different, difficult for the media to serve creating coherent community views in a way. And I think that's another challenge that we inescapably are drawn into grappling with by virtue of the work that we do. Was this, um, was this evolution something that going back to like you stepping into your role as the executive director of ASMP, uh, were these issues, the kind of things you thought you'd ever have to deal with as the, uh, executive director of a trade association for photographers? You know, I think we look so inwardly, sometimes we forget that we're part of a larger visual culture. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that I did, uh, expect to have to grapple with these. I would say that we're still, you know, probably on the, at least I'm personally on the front end of, doing the grappling, but it's the kind of conversation that I think we absolutely have to be bringing to the fore now. And I have felt that our role in part is um, helping the public to understand and value the work of people who have spent their lives mastering craft and applying it in a particular way so that people can more fully understand the world that they're in. And I think that that has a, you know, I mean, to me, it's a, you know, it's a calling that's motivated me through my entire career. And I would, I would just hope that we could have the conversation with the public in a way that we begin to aid the creative community when there's such strong headwinds. Another thing that we haven't really discussed is the, I think again, and I, I'm not, laying this burden entirely at the door of tech companies, but I think they certainly have contributed to this deliberately is the idea that all culture that's found on the internet is expected to be free for the taking and utilized in a way where the creators of that work aren't compensated in any way, shape or form. And I think that there's a, not, a tremendous amount of work that organizations like ours have to do to counter that orthodoxy, because it's very clear to me that if that is allowed to go to its logical ultimate conclusion, it would be very difficult for people to apply themselves in a way where they can dedicate themselves to mastering craft, unless they're tremendously wealthy and don't have to worry about an, an income stream. And then again, that, you know, that the the idea of that terrifies me because then that means that it's going to be, you know, you're going to be restricting visual expression to very few people who would control what everybody else learns or discerns as a result of encountering that kind of, you know, the images. It's a little frightening because in some ways I see it almost as a regression to the very earliest days of photography when photography was considered a pastime of the wealthy. 
Um, Absolutely. And there was a very homogenous view on what you photographed and how you photographed it and how you represented um, how you represented the world. And I think that came out of a very stringent, um, you know, class system that a lot of people viewed as uh, a little stifling until there was some democratization in the photographic industry, allowing a first wave of, of new voices in. I agree with that. And I think that the perception, you know, that the, the thing that we have now is an incredible paradox about that. And, um, you know, it's the timing, I suppose, in the moment, but I think it's something that we have to be aware of and be discussing and being to try to create antidotes so that it doesn't regress as you described. So this might be a question kind of rooted in sort of a, a purely Western mindset right now, but uh, talking in our role, various roles as um, you know, you as the executive director of the American society of media photographers and me as the chairperson of the board of ASMP, what do you see as a larger threat to the commercial viability of photography right now? Is it the rise and proliferation of infringements that are coming from outside of American shores, sort of the idea that if it's on the internet, it's global and it's much harder to control something that exists outside of the bounds of international law? Or is what's happening domestically more frightening to you with the rise of increasing infringement amongst U.S. and bargain convention-based um, you know, companies or in, comp- in countries that are you know signatories in various copyright treaties with us? Is it that lack of respect for copyright intellectual property coming from within, or are you more worried about the changes that are going to be coming uh, from outside, especially uh, countries that are emerging into major business and economic powers? Well, I think, you know, the the hard truth is, is that both, you know, concern me deeply. Um, But I guess if I had to say, put one ahead of the other, I'm much more concerned about what I see happening with them, because I think that there is a ruthlessness to the dominant culture emerging from Silicon Valley that has sort of at its root ideology, the idea that any kind of technological progress is good on its face. And that if, if a a company is intending to sort of create a marketplace, and I actually was just having an email exchange this morning before we got on together about this, that somehow automatically just the mere act of creating a marketplace, regardless of how the rules of the marketplace are operating, uh, is somehow a good thing. I think that we're, we have forces in our society that are actively working against the creative sector all the time. And I think we are again in a minority position, I suppose, um, as a group or as a as a culture, notwithstanding the numbers of, of individual creators that exist. If you think of all forms of media that are out there, if you look at you know certainly the conversations I've had with the, my peers and other trade associations that represent creators, is that everybody is basically saying the same story that the the earning power of the professionals and those. Or you know that are in the sec you know the sectors that those organizations represent have been diminished over the past two decades. So clearly something is going on that's adversely impacting creators, and I think we really need to take a strong stand at every turn to try to counter the sentiments that are at, that are being generated 
I don't, I, I am deeply angry that some of these uh, tech giants have built their fortunes on the backs of creators without really being willing to understand and uh, meet any kind of social obligation to the creators whose work they've utilized. I just think that's outrageous and unconscionable and something to be resisted. What can we as photographers do about it? And when I say that, I don't just mean, uh, I don't just mean ASMP and what we do through advocacy. I mean, that's helpful and it's needed and it's positive and you and the heads of various other creative associations like NPPA and PPFA do a great job with that. But I find that there's a lack of a movement um, in the photographic community itself. Uh, almost that people are sort of seeing, waiting to see which way the wind blows rather than coalescing into like a unified voice. And how do we push back against this? I think that, I think this is a central question. And I would certainly agree that it's larger uh, than our own advocacy efforts, um, good as those are. I believe the central thing is for photographers to be able to express clearly what they need to do their best work in any given circumstance and to try to arrive at relationships with their clients that make clear that they are intending to work for the benefit of the clients as well as themselves. And if the clients help them to get the things that they need to be successful, both parties' interests are going to be much more well-served in the long run. I think we have to be better about communicating what we need to be successful and why we're asking for some of the things that we are in the nature of the relationships that are kind of embodied in the contracts that are defining those relationships. Yeah. And I think we have to equip people to really be able to photographers to express themselves, but then photographers have to be willing to really to not be afraid to express themselves and to make clear why. I mean, I certainly on the other end of it, when I was working both at national geographic and the Washington post, I always wanted to know the, that, you know, those factors I wanted to understand what would make a difference. I wanted to be, you know, it was my job to sort of be the, uh, I, I don't know what you say, the, the ball joint that connected the, the uh, organization and the individual freelance photographer in a way that I was pretty clear that I had shaped the relationship so that both could get what they needed out of the relationship. And it seems to me that that's, that's just smart, business. And a lot of times I just see our uh, uh, constraints being applied in the relationship that have nothing to do with what's going to make something successful on either side. And that those have to be explored and knocked back. And people have to be willing to have the, the, the not the difficult conversations, just the honest conversations about what, what's necessary. Do you think that that necessitates a change in the way photographers position themselves or perceive themselves? Should photographers be moving away from the idea of presenting themselves 
as a component in a vendor client relationship? And should we be viewing ourselves and positioning ourselves more as creative partners or even one person agencies or producers in dealing with other companies, whether they're editorial or commercial? I think, I think the latter for sure. I mean, I have felt for a very long time that, um, the idea that one can take a stance as sort of an individual working across the table from a client is not as productive as being on the same side of the table. But, and, but, and, and I say that not suggesting that you have to give away everything to get that seat on that side of the table, but more that because you're clear about what you value in the relationship and how you think you can best be positioned to help the company achieve its goals for your, from your work, that uh, being seen as an indispensable creative partner is really the positioning that you need to achieve to be successful completely. Nice. So uh, before we wrap up, uh, I want to turn the discussion very quickly to ASMP itself. And we have a lot of listeners who are ASMP members, but we have a lot of listeners who are photographers who are not ASMP members or working internationally. Um, would you talk a little bit about your vision for ASMP and where you see it going in the future, how it can benefit photographers, not just those named photographers that you know, are household names, but you know those everyday journeyman photographers working in their local markets? what is ASMP doing for them? What can ASMP be doing better for them? And what can they be doing to help support ASMP's advocacy mission? Well, I think, you know, the vision that I have is ASMP is a mechanism to build community and to ensure that creators' rights are respected, but also to ensure that the solutions that people need to come to for themselves individually, both from a standpoint of uh, economic concerns, but also creative concerns, that they find the resources within the community to help them achieve their own ambitions, whatever those might be. And I really feel that the, that being a creative is often a very hard, you know, and can be a lonely kind of business. And to the extent that you have peers that you can turn to for mutual support is a really good thing. And I think it aids and abets the creative process. So my hope for the organization is, is we would be that resource and we would be that leveraging point, that fulcrum for building the community that would allow that to be achieved. I think we do that in part by amassing experiences and reflecting experiences and using those, re, you know, those experiences to build resources that people can fall back upon to help when they're, you know, stuck on a particular issue or problem. But also, I think it's a matter of having the human contact. I mean, technology is great in terms of it affording instantaneous connection across the globe at any point in time. But I think that there's also tremendous value in direct human contact. And I think we should be positioning ourselves to promote that kind of human contact whenever possible, both, you know, on, you know, so meetup groups, whatever, you know, uh, regular, you know, connecting experiences that would allow people to realize that they're not creative alone, that there are other creators around them who share similar stories and similar circumstances, and that by 
banding together, they'll be stronger collectively than they would be if they were solely trying to operate individually. I really believe passionately in that idea. All right, Tom, thanks so much for your time this morning. It was great talking to you. For those of you who uh, don't know about ASMP, ASMP is the American Society of Media Photographers. We are the oldest trade association for professional photographers in America, founded in 1944. You can find out more information about ASMP, what we do for professional photographers and creators, including educational opportunities, uh, various media outlets like these podcasts and our live stream events at Adorama New York City, and our amazing advocacy work that we do in Washington and in legal arenas to make sure that artists' rights and copyright uh, are getting stronger for photographers and not being eroded. Uh, I'd like to thank Tom Kennedy for being with us this morning uh, and enjoy. Luke, it was my pleasure. Thanks for uh, asking me to come on. 